We're looking at Jonah chapter 1. Severe storms, severe mercies. Would you say that with me? Severe storms, severe mercies. Say it one more time. Severe storms, severe mercies. Jonah chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 3 and 4 in particular today, but I'm going to begin reading from verse 1 again just to, to bring us uh, in sync with the, uh, the whole picture here that we began looking at last week. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And then the verses we focus on today, verses 3 and 4. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. He, he, he went down to Joppa. We're talking about uh, what we would know today as the, the, the part of the world where Spain would be. Tarshish is, is in fact, the, a Phoenician city, port city, uh, in the south of Spain. So that, that's the part of the world that we're looking at here in this story. He went down, caught a ship in Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, again, away from the presence of the Lord, from the face of Yahweh. Let me read this to you again in a, uh, a, a more literal translation. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the face of God, from the presence of God, the very face of the Lord, Yahweh. He went down to Joppa, and finding a ship bound for Tarshish, he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the face of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was such mighty tempest that the ship expected to break up. So Jonah is on the run, and he's running hard. But God won't let him go. The, the, the text says, as we just read, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He hurled a great wind upon the sea. Let, let that language uh, impact you. It, it's dramatic language. It's evocative language. It's suggestive and terse. God didn't just simply send a strong wind onto the sea. The, 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 the author says he actively hurled a great wind onto the sea. The word hurled is often used for throwing a weapon, such as a spear. If you remember the story of David and Saul, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 11, you remember the vivid picture of, of Saul hurling a spear at David in jealous rage. It's the same word. It's, it's a vivid picture here in the passage at hand of God launching a mighty tempest onto the sea around Jonah's boat. It was a great wind. 
It's the same word that's used to describe Nineveh, a great city. It was a great wind. You need to understand that this storm is no coincidence. This isn't just a fluke that this happened. It's not happenstance. If Jonah refuses to go into a great city in Nineveh, he will go into instead a great storm. And from this we learn both discouraging and comforting news. What are we to think about when storms are attached to sin? The dismaying news, the discouraging news, is that every act of disobedience to God has a storm attached to it. Within the ancient Near East cultural milieu, river, context, within that context, ancient Israel lived among a worldview that considered the sea to be something commonly mythified, representing chaos. In the ancient Near East, during this time, if the people wanted to give you a picture of what chaos looked like, they would point to the sea. It represented that. It was a primeval force which had to be placated and calmed. Some semblance of this belief found its way into some of the Old Testament Scriptures that we have. While God maintains His sovereign rule in the face of hostility, in other words, the, the Lord was the creator of the seas, and as such, He exercised rightful lordship over the sea, as Psalm 107 tells us. But even so, the sea is presented, even in the Old Testament Scriptures, as a type or a personification to rebellion against Yahweh. As I was preparing this message, uh, I was actually working on this particular message last week, week before this week, and last week as well. And, and I, was, I was in uh, one of our, our local uh, coffee shops and, and working away. I had set up my desk right there. And uh, as I was typing on my computer and my screen was open, of course, people could easily walk by and see, and I had my Bible open there on the table and everything else. And so a gentleman stopped because he saw what I was typing on my, my screen. And he said, I like the sea. And I, it kind of took me off guard because I was kind of deep in study, and all of a sudden I hear this voice beside me. I like the sea, he says. He says, what, 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 what's with the sea? What issue, what issue do you have with the sea? I like the sea. And I, it opened up a conversation for me, and I learned that he was actually, this gentleman was visiting here from uh, Ontario, the Hamilton area, in fact, and he was actually here. He, he's a follower of Christ, and he was here kind of on a mission with a small team of people looking into planting a church and, 
And so I began to explain to him, well, in, in ancient Near Eastern thought, this is how they often looked at the sea, as something of a picture for us of chaos and, and, and of what happens when we sin and rebel against God. It's kind of a, a, a personification of this. How many like the sea? I love the sea. I love the ocean. That's one of the things I love about being here on the West Coast. And God is in no way creating a case for us here to hate the sea. Don't misunderstand. What we're, what we're being presented with here in this passage is, is a picture of a very poetic and biblical picture that was very familiar to the ancient Near Eastern context. In other words... God often spoke in images that the people, even the people that were not considered His people, those people outside of the people of Israel, would, they would be able to relate with what was being said. And so we find in the Old Testament the sea often being depicted as that, as something of a picture of what takes place when rebellion against God happens. This is, in fact, one of the great themes of the Old Testament wisdom literature, especially the book of Proverbs. Now, having said all of that, I want to be careful here because as I, for one, as I just said a moment ago, I, I'm not creating a case, nor has God ever created a case for us to hate the sea or that there's something demonic about the sea. That, that's not the point. It's a picture to illustrate something to us. So I, I, I want to be careful in that regard, but I also want to be careful that we, that we don't misunderstand. Please don't misunderstand. This is not to say that every difficult thing that comes into our lives is punishment for some particular sin. That's not what's being said here in, in this part of the story. I'll say that again. We're not saying, and God is not saying in how He's dealing with Jonah here, that every difficult thing that comes into our lives is punishment for some particular sin. The entire book of Job contradicts the common belief that good people will have lives that go well. And that if our life is going badly, it must be your fault due to sin or, or disobedience. The, the story of Job, if, you, if we understand it properly, completely contradicts that. So, all, you know, all of the, the promises that even televangelists give us out there, you know, the, the, the Joel Osteens and all those guys, and, and I love them, they're brothers, but the promise that we're going to have our best life now, and you're sitting here thinking, well, if that's the case, how come I'm dealing with all these problems? There must be some sort of sin in my life or something. No, the, the Scriptures contradict all of that, and that's not what we're saying here. God does not promise us that we're going to have our best life now, nor does He say that as followers of His, those people who do know the joy of the Lord is their strength, nor does he say that, that we're never going to know any problems or difficulties or adversity. In fact, as we looked at earlier around the Advent wreath, you will know trouble in this world, he says. 
It comes with living in this world. But fear not, I have overcome the world. So the Bible doesn't teach that every difficulty we face is a result of sin. But listen, it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. A storm of sorts. Chaos. So if you're experiencing a storm right now, it's not to say that there's sin in your life. We're not saying that. But if we do know that we are we, we are very consciously and deliberately rebelling against God's way and God's call and God's intention for us, the, the very purpose and reason He created us, if we know that we're consciously running from that, as Jonah is, we will face storms. How many are tracking with me? You understand, please don't leave today and say, Pastor Dave preaches that there's sin in your life. If you're facing a storm, there's sin in your life. That, that's not what we're saying here at all. But we are saying what the Bible says, that when we do deliberately rebel and give ourselves to run in sin as Jonah did, there will be storms to face. We cannot carelessly treat our bodies indifferently and still expect to have good health. Hello? We, we cannot and expect to have good health. And the Scriptures deal with that too, that you know, more, more than even divine healing, which we have in the Lord and in His provision, the, the atonement of Christ gives us. But before all of that, God calls us to give ourselves to, to, to health. To take care of ourselves, to get rest, to eat healthy, all of that, to, to, to uh, you know, have good habits in that way in our lives. We cannot carelessly treat people indifferently and expect to maintain their friendship. We cannot all put our own selfish interests ahead of the common good and still have a functioning society. If we violate the design and purpose of things according to God's divine order, if we sin against our bodies, our relationships, or our society, how many know they push back? We end up dealing with health issues. We end up losing friendships. We have trouble in the world around us, in society. Here's my point. This is what I'm trying to say in in drawing your attention to these things. There are natural consequences. And sin very much brings with it its own form of judgment. Hello? Sin has wages. You know, when tragedy happens in the world, when when we see hurricanes or earthquakes and all of this happen... And, you know, the evangelical community, as it's come to be known, cries out, oh, God's judging the world. Well, is he really judging the world, or are these just the consequences of our own behavior? Sin has its own consequences. 
It's not about God judging the world as much as it's just the natural outcome of living life the way we've chosen to live. As we run from God. How many are tracking with me here? There are natural consequences. And if we violate the divine order and laws of God, we are violating our very own design. Since God built us to know and love and serve Him, we put ourselves at odds against ourselves. We're shooting ourselves in the foot, if I can use that expression, by running against God, running from God. We're fighting against ourselves because we're fighting against the very design and order He created us with to know, the very DNA He's put within us. The Bible speaks at times about God punishing sin. The proud and arrogant in heart will not go unpunished, Proverbs 16, verse 5 tells us. But at other times, watch this, at other times, the Bible speaks of the sin itself bearing down its own consequences of punishing us. God doesn't have to do anything because the sin itself bears down upon us. The violence of the wicked, Proverbs 21, verse 7 says, the violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just and right. It's not, it doesn't say anything there about God doing anything. It, the, the Proverbs writer says the, the violence of the wicked itself will sweep them away. Both are true at once. All sin has a storm attached to it. Sin sets up pressures and strains in the structure of our lives which can only lead to eventual breakdown. Generally speaking, liars are lied to. Attackers are attacked. And the one who lives by the sword, as Jesus said, dies by the sword. We reap what we sow. We reap to the wind and we get a whirlwind. We reap what we sow. If we don't like what we're reaping in our lives, maybe we ought to check the seed we're sowing. You're tracking with me here. Maybe we ought to stop blaming God. Maybe we ought to stop calling out that God is judging. And maybe we ought to first check the seed of what we're sowing in our lives. Because maybe we're sowing seeds of storm-like outcomes. That's what Jonah was doing. God created us to live for Him more than anything else. So there is a spiritual givenness to our lives. If we build our lives and meaning on anything or anyone more than God, we are living against the divine order of things. 
We are living against the grain of the universe and of our own divine design. And therefore, we're living against our very own being, our very own selves. In Jonah's case, the results of disobedience are immediate and dramatic. There is a mighty storm directed right at Jonah. It hits with such suddenness and such fury that even, watch this, even the pagan sailors discern it as being of supernatural origin. I mean, the sailors, the pagan sailors have more sense and perception than Jonah does. That's not the norm, however. The results of sin are often more gradual and protracted, like the physical response you have to a debilitating dose of radiation. Any of you who have been through that process, it, it's, a, it's, it's a good picture for us of understanding the results of sin that are more gradual and protracted. Like the physical response our bodies have to a debilitating dose of radiation, you don't suddenly feel the pain the moment you are exposed. It isn't like a bullet or a sword tearing into you. In fact, you feel quite normal. You, you talk to, not everyone, but often you talk to people who have just experienced their first radiation treatment that are fighting cancer. And after that first treatment, they, they will often tell you that they, they really don't feel any different. Still kind of feel quite themselves. You feel quite normal. But it's only later, as time passes, do you experience symptoms. And sin is like that. And later on you experience, you start to experience the symptoms as things start to more fully unravel and by then it's too late. Sin is really a suicidal action. It's a suicidal action of the will upon itself. It's like taking an addicting drug. And at first it may feel wonderful and pleasant, but every time it becomes more difficult not to do it again. Here's just one example. When you indulge yourself in bitter thoughts of unforgiveness, it feels so satisfying to fantasize about your payback. Doesn't it? Hello? Am I talking? Do I have any witnesses in the room today? Am I, am I all alone up here? Come on. You've been there just like I have. It's so fun to fantasize about our payback. As we 
as we hold on, as we indulge ourselves in the bitter, resentful thoughts of unforgiveness and just fantasize about that payback for a while. Yeah, that feels good. It kind of releases something into our adrenaline, our system. We kind of like that. However, slowly but surely, it will eat you alive. Hello? I have met people, and perhaps you have too, and they are the most embittered, angry, toxic individuals you could meet, and it's because they have held on to this very something happened, somebody did something to them, somebody said somebody, and they've held on to that, and they've nursed that thing, and they've, they've fantasized, and they've indulged in that for years, for years, and many of them can't even remember the details of what that or who or what it originally was. Some can depending on the nature of the situation, but many can't. They just, but they're angry. They're free. They just know, they, and they care, and it eats you alive. It's like drinking poison and hoping that other person dies, but it eats you alive instead. It enlarges your capacity for self-pity. It erodes your ability to trust and enjoy relationships. And generally, it drains the happiness and the joy out of your daily life. And these people are miserable. You can see it on their countenance. And I feel for those people. And, and by God's grace, I'd be there with them. Maybe many of us in this room as well. And we need to pray for those people. We need to love them. We need to have compassion for them. Sin always hardens the conscience, locking you in the prison of your own defensiveness and your own resentment and your own rationalizations, and it consumes you slowly from the inside. It eats you for lunch. All sin has a mighty, turbulent storm attached to it. The image is powerful because even in our technologically advanced world, and despite movies like the 2017 American science fiction disaster film Geostorm, maybe you saw that movie, despite movies like that, we can't control the weather. Geostorm is a story about how they, they, they were able to control when storm and how storms would happen and all of this. And it was a pretty fascinating story. But, but despite all of that, we can't control. You can't bribe a storm or baffle it with logic or rhetoric. You will be sinning against God. You can be sure that your sin will track you down, Numbers tells us. So this is the discouraging news. I said there's discouraging news, but there's also good news. The discouraging news is sin always has a storm attached to it. A storm that will track you down. And perhaps you're in the midst of that right now. But there's good news. 
Somebody say, hallelujah. <laughs> There's comforting news in this too. This part of the story we're looking at with Jonah. For Jonah, the storm was indeed a consequence of his sin. Yet the sailors, watch this, the sailors, the seamen, were caught in this storm too. And they had nothing to do with what Jonah was doing. They didn't even really know the man. But yet they're caught in this storm too. Most often, the storms of life come upon us not as a consequence of a particular sin, but as the unavoidable consequence of living in a fallen, broken, and troubled world. This is the human condition. And there is truth in the words that we find in the book of Job. People are born for trouble as readily as the sparks fly up from the fire. In other words, if we're born into this world, we're going to face trouble. As sure as the fire shoots off sparks, we're going to face trouble. And therefore, the condition of the world makes it filled with destructive storms. However, as we will see, this storm in the story leads the sailors to genuine faith in the one true God, even though it was not their fault to begin with. Amazing. And for Jonah, Jonah begins his journey towards understanding the grace of God in a whole new way. As Christ followers, storms will also come into our lives that, that are not the result of sin or the consequence of sin. They are none other than the consequence of living in this fallen planet. Storms will come into our lives. And they simply come with living in this world we currently live in, you and me. Maybe you're facing that kind of a storm today. But the good, good news is, is that as we devote ourselves to walk with Him, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, we can hold fast to the promise that God will redemptively and perfectly use the storms in our favor and for our good. Even the storms that we had nothing to do with. It's just part of living in this fallen world. But God, because we are His and we are walking with Him, uses even the storms in our favor. Hallelujah. Turn to somebody and say, that's good news. That's good news. Because it means the storm you're in is not for naught. It's, it's not without point and purpose. God takes it and redeems it and uses it for your good. I mean, think with me for a moment. Will you just reflect with me about our ancestors? When God wanted to make Abraham into a man of faith who could be the father of all the faithful on the earth, what did he do? Did he send him Joel Osteen's book, How to Have Your Best Life Now? No. What did he do? If you remember the story, he put Abraham through years of wandering with apparently unfulfilled promises. 
Sarah was in her latter years, and she's being told, you're going to have a son. I mean, think about that. Some of you, how many of you would like that kind of news today? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> or think about when God wanted to turn Joseph from an arrogant, deeply spoiled teenager into a man of character. What did he do? He put him through years of rough handling and hardship. Joseph had to experience slavery and imprisonment before he could save his people. God meant it, and Joseph, these are Joseph's words himself to his brothers, who, who were instruments of throwing him into the pit and having, selling him off to slaves. And he says to his brothers at, at, the, at, the, at the, the, the turn of the story, he says, God meant it all for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Then there was Moses, who became a fugitive and spent 40 long years in the lonely wilderness before he could shepherd lead God's people. Forty years. Please understand, beloved, the Bible does not say that every difficulty we face is the result of our sin or our disobedience. But it does teach us that for Christ followers, every difficulty we face can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. Storms, if we're teachable in them, can develop in us faith and hope and love and patience and humility and self-control and Christ-likeness that nothing else can. Storms do that. Not to mention innumerable people have testified that they found faith in Christ and abundant life and purpose-filled, meaningful living only because some kind of great storm drove them toward God. Again, I, I want to be careful here. The first chapters of Genesis teach that God did not create the world and humankind for suffering, for pain, for disease, for natural disasters, for aging and death. God didn't create the world for those purposes. He doesn't get some sick sense of, of, of thrill. Evil, disease, disorder, and destruction entered the world when we chose to turn away and run from Him, as our ancestors Adam and Eve did. But God has tied His heart to us. He has tied His heart to us like an umbilical cord. Such that when He sees the sin and the suffering in the world, his heart is filled with painful anguish. And in all our affliction, he too is afflicted, Isaiah tells us. Think about that. In all your affliction, he too is afflicted. He bears that with you and with me. God is not like a chess player 
casually, whimsically, and arbitrarily moving us as pawns around the chessboard. Nor is it usually clear in our, our understanding until years later, if even in this life at all, what possible good God was accomplishing in the difficulties we suffered. You just look at the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11, and we see those that, that knew the, 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 the breakthrough of faith on this side of the glory, but many who died not seeing those promises fulfilled, but yet they're still considered people of faith. They still held on to their faith, even though they didn't understand, they didn't figure it out, but they knew that someday they would understand. And the same is true for us. We may wonder what possible good God could be accomplishing in the difficulties we're suffering. And even so, we, if we can't figure all of that out, and we may not know all the reasons and what fors and whys until we stand before Him face to face, but even so, on this side of the kingdom, we do know this. God is always sovereignly working in ways designed to lead to outcomes that are congruent and consistent with His redemptive salvation purposes. God, in other words, God always means it for good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God travels wonderful ways with human beings. But he does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. Rather, his way is beyond all comprehension, free and self-determined beyond all proof, where reason is indignant, where our nature rebels, where our piety anxiously keeps us away. That is precisely where God loves to be with us. There he confounds the reason of the reasonable. There he aggravates our nature, our piety. That is where he wants to be, and no one can keep him from it. God works through the storms. Your storms. My storms. Nevertheless, as hard as it is to discern and perceive God's loving and wise purposes and that He means it all for good, behind many of our trials and difficulties, it would be even more hopeless to imagine that He has no control over them or that our pain and our suffering are arbitrary and random and meaningless. Think about how hopeless that would be to conclude that, well, it's all just arbitrary. That's the way the spirit of the world thinks. It's all just arbitrary and random. But as Christ followers, the truth we have is that God has purpose and meaning in it all. And we see it through the stories of many of our ancestors all throughout the Scriptures. And we take hope and joy and strength in that. As events unfold for Jonah, it becomes evident that God wants to bring him to a place of not only reconsidering the call, 
to go to Nineveh, but also to a point of settling Jonah's conflicted theology, the way he thinks about God. How do we think about God? That's our theology. God wants to address that with Jonah. God wants to address that with me, with you. Jonah could not see that the deep within his terror of the storm, deep within that terror, God's mysterious mystery was, in fact, at work drawing him back to transform his heart. It was a severe storm, but God was working a severe mercy. I suppose that it's not surprising that Jonah, a human person just like you and me, missed this initially. I mean, would we have gotten it if we were the one hiding out down in the bottom of that boat on the run? Would we have figured it out? Probably not. We take hope in knowing that Jonah's like us. We're like him. He missed it. After all, he did not know how God would come into the world and, 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 and save us. He didn't know about that, what we know now after the fact. For us, however, living on this side of the story, on this side of the cross, we know that God can save and redeem even perhaps especially through weakness, through suffering, and through apparent defeat. Those who watched Messiah Jesus dying saw nothing but loss and failure and tragedy at the time. They didn't know the end of the story like we do. They were on the other side of the cross, to them, it looked like nothing more than just loss and tragedy and failure. Epic fail. Yet, as the heart of that darkness, the divine mercy of God was powerfully at work at the very heart, bringing about pardon and forgiveness and healing, and deliverance, and new creation hope for us here today. Yes, God's salvation came into the world through suffering, so His saving grace and power can faithfully and fruitfully work in our lives more and more as we go through difficulty and sorrow and pain and suffering. There is mercy, beloved. There is mercy Deep inside the severity of our storms, his ultimate objective is always to move beyond the storm to mercy. For you. For me. God's ultimate objective is not judgment. God's ultimate purpose is not the storm. God's ultimate objective is always, always, always mercy. Mercy always triumphs. James tells us that. Would you stand with me? As Philip and the team come, I want to acknowledge the fact that there are those in this room today 
that are going through storms in this season, even in this Advent Christmas season. And they may be storms that are related to sin and rebellion and disobedience, wrong attitudes and agendas and intentions. The storm may, in fact, be very much that kind of a storm. Or it may simply be as could be for the greater part of us in this room, storms that we're dealing with just simply by being a member of this human race here in this planet, this fallen, broken planet. And we're dealing with the storms and consequences of simply that. The outcome of the fallenness and brokenness of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And we contend with that now, but we do so in Christ. And in Christ, our storms have meaning and purpose. And God means those storms for our good. As we walk with Him, as followers of His, as people of the Spirit, He takes even the storms we may be facing right now, whatever they may be, in your life, in your family, in your marriage, with your children, at work, whatever they may be, in your health. He's working in your favor. He is for you, not against you. And even when it feels like He's against you, He's for you. It seemed like God was against Jonah. But really, God was for Jonah even in the storm. 